Hello and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for 2018. My name is Michael Laminato and this is Round 8, the French Grand Prix. Formula One's return to France was heralded as a great story for a sport that has its roots in the country, but no one expected the circuit Paul Ricard to deliver great racing. And in the end, the critics were right. And were it not for a chaotic first lap that put two frontrunners out of the race, the first French Grand Prix in a decade would have been an extremely straightforward affair. To ask why the race underdelivered, I'm joined by Red Bull Australia motorsport editor Matt Clayton. Matt, how are you doing? Hello, Michael. Yes, it's the uh, the morning after the night before, you might say, <laughs> and a fairly lengthy night if you're watching this race from Australia with the uh, midnight start. Mm, delayed for the English World Cup, or perhaps for the traffic people face getting into it one way or another. Uh, neither was uh, perhaps delivering on the particularly exciting forecast that maybe some would have expected. The French Grand Prix in particular, I mean, I guess you sort of got what we expected when this is a, a testing track predominantly, isn't it? So it was, a, in some respects, a bit of a glorified test. It was a little bit. I think when you look at the facility, facility there the track surface is it might be the best track surface in the world which is fantastic if you're uh, running races in a laboratory but uh, when you have paying spectators and uh, media and other types following the race closely it was always going to be a reasonably predictable race I think we got a predictable outcome but how we got to that predictable outcome uh, perhaps was a little bit different after what happened on the first lap yeah absolutely now to set the scene for this race yes the return to Paul Ricard for 10 years but it has been upkept it hasn't been one of the circuits that have fallen into disrepair and had a baseball stadium built on it it's always been there uh, but there's nonetheless a couple of things Formula I needed to adjust to itself uh, first of all when we talked about this at the Spanish Grand Prix the Pirelli tyres that were brought here and they were the soft, super soft and ultra soft in that order, in case you were wondering, uh, had thinner tread on them. And that did favour Mercedes in Spain, unintentionally, of course. So Ferrari already felt a little bit on the back foot and perhaps doubly so because this weekend Mercedes finally brought their first upgraded power unit of the year and it seemed to have an effect. Phase 2.1, not to be confused with the uh, phase (laughs) 2.0 that wasn't raced in Canada, but uh, that point one certainly seemed to make all the difference because in every practice session and all three sessions of qualifying it was a Mercedes up front and when you consider particularly where Lewis Hamilton was just two weeks before in Montreal, it uh, does show you that combination of track surface, tyre and also that upgraded power unit certainly put Mercedes back in the ascendancy. Yeah, and there was, of course, concerns given that when Mercedes does seem to be uh, in, a, in a good feint of form, particularly this season and to a lesser extent last season too, when they had a bit more control overall in the title, but when they're ahead, there's not really any stopping them. It becomes a bit of a non-contest. And drivers are also worried that given this circuit is... It's, it tests the car, I suppose. There are certainly technical parts of it, but that overtaking would be quite difficult. There was even talk of them wanting to make last-minute track changes and removing chicanes and thing like, things like that. And the one thing that I guess the FIA really did pick up on, because you can't really change the circuit once it's been homologated, uh, was the pit lane speed limit, which does have an effect on, on strategy calls. It was reduced down to 60 kilometres per hour, which is pretty much walking pace for cars like these. Well, it is. I mean, it's, it's the sort of pit lane speed limit you see at somewhere like Albert Park, and that makes sense for Australia because that pit lane is so narrow there. It's a a long pit lane but it's very, very narrow and you can see why the speed limit is reduced. I think the problem with the pit lane at Paul Ricard wasn't so much the width of the pit lane, it was more the entry uh, coming off the final corner and a a bit of a uh, right-left to get into the pit lane and I think Mercedes in particular were quite worried particularly if it was wet, that cars could slide across the apron into where their mechanics and their cars were. Very, very tight on the, uh, the pit lane entry there so the length of the pit lane was fine, the width 
width was probably fine. It was more the entry point and uh, probably more to the point, the uh, where it spat you back out onto the track, mm. right in the on the racing line heading into Turn 1, I reckon that will definitely be addressed for next year because I think it was more through luck than any great judgment that we didn't have more incident at turn one because the uh, we're fed back into turn one definitely didn't look like the best solution to me. It's surprising how not rain friendly this circuit seems given it's one of the few circuits in the world I'm pretty sure that has a sprinkler an Eccleston sprinkler system if we want to call it such. So you'd think it'd be prepared for weather but like you said especially that pit lane exit there were concerns because there were thunderstorms forecast that uh, given the spray a car might be producing leaving that pit lane or a car ahead that there could be a serious issue going on there. Well we saw that in FP3 where there was a reasonable downpour of rain nothing that you wouldn't see anywhere else certainly not uh, Malaysia type <laughs> levels of rain and the drainage on the circuit it was incredibly wet for the amount of water that had come on it the, uh, the the drainage was very very slow there so giving you talking about changing surfaces coming from the pit lane exit back onto the circuit and that 60% forecast of rain for the race that definitely could have thrown a a strategic curveball in there but also from a safety point of view so I think again F1 may be a little bit lucky that didn't happen it's interesting we don't often get new circuits we more and more often they're not there street circuits and there's a sort of accepted wisdom with street circuits that they can be a bit hit and miss just because of the nature of them not being necessarily designed for racing uh, for the most part certainly but I can't remember the last time a new track seemed to be certainly before the race so universally panned by everyone whether it was spectators who couldn't get to the track drivers who didn't like the layout the drainage was no good the pit lane was terrible it wasn't perhaps the, the best of debuts or, or re-debuts if you like for Paul Ricard No it reminds me a little bit of the first time we went to Abu Dhabi mm. in 2009 in that the pit lane exit there is all very fancy because it goes <laughs> under the circuit and through a tunnel and all that sort of thing it does feed you right the, into the middle of a very very fast unsighted uphill corner so I think that was uh, proof that you can spend uh, as much money as you like on something but you don't get things right but uh, what surprised me with Ricard is as you said before it's a circuit that has existed this is not a new issue you know perhaps people have got short memories because it has been some time since we've been here but uh, I was very surprised given that we knew this circuit was coming back on the calendar for quite some time that that pit lane exit was still the issue that it was mm. now if we move on to qualifying with all those problems in the back of someone's head somewhere I suppose uh, we've seen again and this is going to be a bit of a theme for this this race episode because the, the difference between, let's say, the top class and the second class of Formula 1, something we've been talking about not only this year, but it's, it's been a bit of a problem for a number of years now, but it really struck home again here at qualifying where we had Mercedes and Red Bull Racing uh, opting to start the race on Super Softs because they qualified in Q2 on the Super Softs rather than the Ultra Softs. Yes, this sentence already sounds confusing, doesn't it? <laughs> but it, it, it shows how easy it is for them to do that. It's not so much of a risk for these drivers or these cars to attempt to qualify on a slower tyre. It's really just a strategic decision. And we saw, uh, I suppose, the inverse of that Ferrari choosing not to, not necessarily because they didn't think they would be able to, but this was really where they set up strategies that maybe would have come to pass in the race had there not been a crash. But it sort of does make a bit of a... Bit of a joke of that part of qualifying, doesn't it? Yeah, look, it does. I mean, I think the top three teams know that short of some sort of car failure, they will be into Q3. So they have such a margin over the second and third and whatever tier Williams and McLaren <laughs> find themselves in at the moment, uh, which is another story for later on. But they know that they their tyre choice in Q2 is not particularly relevant for the remainder of the field. It's more what they're doing in amongst that top three teams. I think for Ferrari, the reason that they would have gone on ultrasofts, I think had Mercedes gone ultrasofts in Q2, Ferrari would have probably done the opposite because they knew trying to fight Mercedes on this circuit with the same tyre strategy was only going to lead to one result. So they probably had to zig where Mercedes zagged a little bit, try and do the opposite to give themselves a chance to beat 
for, uh, Mercedes in a race where they really didn't have the, the latent car speed. Yeah, and it shows again that um, what I think over the course of the season, even if the races, particularly of late, haven't themselves been particularly exciting, but it shows that seesawing between Mercedes and Ferrari that is building towards a pretty exciting championship overall. It'll make a great highlights video at the end of the year. Yeah, I think that the races in isolation, as we saw, as we've seen from the last four, I mean, the last four races now have been won from pole position, but the races themselves, perhaps not, but over the course of the season, you have this ebb and flow where you never would have predicted that Mercedes would maybe have this level of dominance in uh, France after what happened in Canada two mm-hmm. weeks before. So when Mercedes or Ferrari get it right, they get it very, very right. Each of them has strengths that the others doesn't. So it's going to be track dependent. It's going to be weather dependent. But I think as long as you have two and on occasion when they can get their Red Bull as the third team in a fairly tight fight, in totality, I think the season's going to be quite good. But in isolation, you do end up with races a little bit like Spain, where Hamilton uh, ran and hit in Spain, and uh, a little bit like this race here. Yeah, and I mean, this was poised, or we say this all the time, but it was poised to be at least strategically interesting at the beginning of the race. Sebastian Vettel was starting from third. That's as close as he could get after a Mercedes front row lockout with their new engines, as we said. Uh, but it all came undone pretty quickly. And this was really where the the strategic tension that could have built up mostly eroded because Sebastian Vettel crashed into Valtteri Bottas. Both were dropped to the back of the grid. And I thought it was interesting that there was, from a number of people, okay, Nicky Lauda works for Mercedes, so he's got a reason to, but Max Verstappen, for one, is, I suppose, a relatively impartial bystander, notwithstanding how much criticism he's copped over the start of the year for having crashes of his own. But this undercurrent of maybe five seconds uh, time penalty, which is what he ultimately got for that crash that really did ruin Bottas's race, considering how good that car was, maybe wasn't strong enough, given Verstappen and has had uh, stronger penalties in the past for similar indiscretions. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the, the Verstappen thing, there's a, uh, a cumulative effect, I suppose, in that when you're a repeat offender with these sorts of things, perhaps the you're given a little bit of uh, less rope, perhaps. But uh, look, I mean, I think we all expected Vettel to be very aggressive on the clean side of the grid. And also, you know, with, he knew he had to make this tyre offset work mm-hmm. in the first corner. And given the lack of opportunities to pass, I think there was more passing in this race than perhaps we thought. But certainly pre-race, it seemed that turn one, lap one was going to be the place to probably upset the Mercedes dominance at the front of the field. And as Vettel said afterwards, he almost got too good of a start. Mm-hmm. But it was a little bit of a clumsy move for someone with the pedigree that he's got and the impact that that had you took two of the three cars that were probably going to win the race out of the equation leaving it pretty open for Hamilton but then there was a knock-on effect right the way through the rest of the field cars being in contentions for podiums that probably shouldn't someone like Kimi Raikkonen who had a really poor qualifying was suddenly able to put himself into podium contention which on pure pace he probably wouldn't have and it certainly shaped the back end of the points as well so in some respects maybe we should be thankful for Sebastian (laughs) Vettel for uh, junking up the front of the order a little bit but uh, it certainly did seem to at the time to be a little bit of a lenient penalty given that Bottas drove the rest of the race with a car that was severely damaged the floor on that car was was in terrible shape for most of the rest of that race and explained a lot of the deficit he had to Vettel did make the first part of the race interesting with Vettel storming back through on new tyres and certainly a car that was quicker but uh, ultimately he could only get us uh, as far as he got. Yeah, and it's this point that we can bring back into the fold the idea of this two-class Formula 1 because yes, while we did have a whole lot of overtaking and Valtteri Bottas in particular had some good ones despite having the damaged car, he couldn't make as fast progress as Vettel who I think only needed 14 laps to get back onto the tail of of his front-running rivals at Red Bull and, and Mercedes. 
But it was... I, I mean, I was watching the overtakes, and I'd like to get your opinion on this as well, and sure, like, they were... You know, you had to line them up, and you had to do the work. Of course they had to do the work, but it really did have a sense of, of passing lapped traffic, but there were no blue flags for these. No, I think, you know, that if you're in the second tier at the moment, what have you got to gain by fighting a car that, you know, in qualifying might be one and a half seconds faster per lap than you? on ultimate pace and obviously Vettel was really unleashing that car on some brand new tyres a lot of the time we're finding at the moment that the top three teams you only actually find out how fast these three cars are when they are back in the pack and they have to storm through because they're driving with such a margin at the moment so if you're driving a, a Renault or a Haas and you're thinking this is not my race to be fighting for at the moment the second tier of Formula 1 assuming that the top three teams have both drivers finish seventh place is like a class win mm-hmm. at the moment and that's the, you know, you, you're not going to bother getting yourself into a fight that you're going to go offline you're going to make your tyres dirty you're going to perhaps uh, distort your tyre life and have to compromise your strategy later on in the race so there is a sense of uh, uh, you know, look, I'll just let you through. You go on and have your race and I'll look after mine. Whether that's good for the spectacle or not, I guess, is the question. My personal opinion is that it's not. You do like to see these front-running guys really have to work for it. But there's also, I think, the teams are in the ear of their drivers saying, this is not your fight to have. Uh, don't compromise what could be your optimum result by getting into a fight that you're probably not going to win ultimately you might hold someone off for a few corners or half a lap but it's not your fight to be in so whether that's good for the spectacle or not I suggest it probably isn't and uh, that's the biggest issue with F1 at the moment the gap between tier one and tier two is just far too big yeah it's huge and if you really break down the the lap chart of course because of Vettel and Bottas dropping to the back there are crisscrosses all over the place but when if you would take them out of the equation it's it's so divided between the two there's not any crossover at all uh, and it was interesting at this point, though, from them dropping to the back, and it's sort of a bit of a default strategy when a car that should be higher up falls back to the back and is out of position, uh, or even if they start there, to be honest. Uh, they they usually move to the hardest tyre, which is what Sebastian Vettel and Valtteri Bottas did. They switched to the softs, and they made an attempt to run all the way to the end of the race, essentially doing a zero-stop strategy, given there was a safety car on the first lap, which allowed them to catch right back up to the back of the field. Uh, and considering that it's quite low degradation here, given that extreme smooth surface there was a chance this could have worked and in fact uh, when the, the the pit stop window opened for the front runners uh, by the time Sebastian had caught them uh, on, after lap 20 when Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo were making their stops Ricciardo did in fact fall behind Sebastian Vettel but it was temporary because those tyres on Vettel's car suddenly did that thing that they used to do all those years ago and, and started falling off a bit of a cliff which for the sake of the race was probably a good thing I think the thing that uh, surprised me was that the pace that Vettel had and look maybe he used up too much of the tyre mm. scything through the uh, the rest of the field as he did but his pace was really really good and then over the course of two or three laps the the, you know, the cliff had uh, he had cascaded off said cliff <laughs> and uh, you know the, the pace dropped so dramatically that he ended up abandoning a brand new set of soft tyres after 39 laps where they were hoping to do 52 on them and I think the, the comparison there is that and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to this but Kimi Raikkonen started the race on a used set of, uh, of Ultrasoft and managed to do 34 laps at his first stint so has almost got the same number of laps out of a set of tyres as Vettel had. Vettel's tyres were new and two steps harder than Raikkonen's, and Raikkonen was almost able to do the same number of laps as Vettel was. So to me, that was the interesting part, that the uh, the cliff, the uh, the Pirelli cliff that we used to see, uh, certainly was in effect at this track. It's a question I've been asking over the last couple of races, and, and we've sort of raised it over the course of this. You saw as Vettel and Bottas charged through the pack that there's a lot more pace in those front-running cars than we ordinarily get to see. And I think a lot of people were particularly frustrated in Canada, where you could really 
clearly tell that no one seemed to be pushing particularly hard until, I mean, Daniel Ricciardo, well, he didn't actually set the fastest lap, but he sort of set the fastest lap after the chequered flag had fallen, but right at the end, didn't he? Uh, and this really goes to show, I mean, is there anything that can be done? We've got a one-stop race here, but that theoretically, had they been pushing hard on the tyres, could have been two. When you look at Kimi Raikkonen taking the ultra-softs, the softest tyres here, for 34 laps, I mean, it doesn't really make any sense, does it? No, I mean, and, th- and this is the problem with, uh, you know, we, we, we mentioned before about the compromised uh, pit lane speed at uh, a poor Ricard, but track position in this, era of Form- in this era of Formula One, the cars are faster than we've ever seen them. The cornering speed is absolutely immense. The wake and the dirty air these cars are throwing up, if you're trying to pass someone, you literally need to be one and a half to two seconds a lap faster. Otherwise, you're going to destroy your tyres and you're going to compromise your race. So it's more a question of, it's aero at the moment that's causing, and of course the wider cars as well, but it is causing processional races. The chance of diving in the pits, throwing on some new rubber and storming through the field is compromised all the more because you've got either tracks where you can only pass at certain points or not at all in the case of Monaco. You can be so much faster than the person in front of you and you can destroy your tyres because the dirty air is so great. So that is the issue at the moment. I think everyone's erring on the side of conservatism. You mentioned Canada before and you know, you look at the, the race in France, there were you know, only five drivers that actually... Uh, five drivers pitted on lap one under safety car which obviously no safety car you've got a much more processional race Vettel and Bottas both had damage Alonso forget he had nothing to lose because he was way down the back anyway and uh, similarly Williams pitted both of their drivers in an attempt to do the uh, no stop Mm -hmm. as you mentioned to get all the way to the end with Sorotkin and with Stroll and other than that it was one stop all the way because there's nothing to be gained by trying to pass someone on track which meant that that battle for the podium which had briefly looked like Vettel could have made a sensational return to uh, fell back down to Ricardo and Kimi Raikkonen who had executed I suppose a little bit stronger a strategy than Pirelli expected Pirelli doesn't normally expect I guess the cars to race harder than they actually do is ultimately what their predictions come down to and he managed to overcome Ricardo. but this was partly because Daniel had some damage to his front wing which seemed to really be compromising his performance but also I suppose because Kimi Raikkonen did do something a little bit different to the rest of the front runners and ended his race on the super soft compound which gave him a pace advantage as well well and as, as I mentioned before I mean I'm still not sure whether the softest tyre in a three tyre range at a Grand Prix should be able to basically do two thirds <laughs> of the distance and, and that's what Raikkonen did 30 four of the, fi- the 53 laps on a set of used ultra soft tyres that he'd used in Q2 mm-hmm. so you know, whether that's the issue but we never really got to see how that fight was going to play out just before Daniel's only stop he mentioned that he had had some problems with the front wing apparently on the left side the right side went as well afterwards and then the car was just understeering all over the place so he did have a little bit of uh, bad timing with some blue flags he caught the William both Williams cars in the last part of the lap where it is a, a little bit follow my leader but Raikkonen was able to get by with six laps to go. Had it not happened then, I think Daniel was a bit of a sitting duck at that point. He was on older tyres, and certainly the front wing wasn't giving him any performance. And for Raikkonen, look, we can still talk about his qualifying pace. At the moment, you know that more than likely one of uh, Vettel, Bottas or Hamilton's going to be on pole. The Red Bulls will probably be next to each other on the grid, and Kimi will be anchored in position six because he just can't get his qualifying right. He actually raced very strongly on a strategy that, as you were saying, Pirelli probably didn't expect that tyre to go as long as it did. So maybe Raikkonen's fairly slow start and ability to 
through luck or judgment, we don't know, <laughs> get himself out of the first corner mess, really, really set up his race because he was able to run that counter strategy and be fast at the end. Now, amongst all of those recoveries up ahead, it was Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen who finished first and second. Verstappen, another clean and quiet race, I suppose we can call it, after a bit of a messy start to the season. And then Lewis Hamilton, never really looking threatened, led all but one lap. That was, of course, when he made his pit stop. There was nothing interesting happening at that point. Uh, but it does show, I mean, it's been this uh, this question I suppose Red Bull Racing has been posing for most of the year saying that they're thereabouts uh, you know in the right circumstance I suppose they can race for wins but I mean yes we've already acknowledged that this is one of those rounds where Mercedes and Hamilton were in the groove and they always seem unstoppable in that situation but it never seemed likely that in second place a Red Bull Racing driver was going to be able to challenge for this win or, or for either Mercedes had both of them been up there. No completely right and uh, obviously Verstappen was able to uh, go through one of the expansive runoff areas <laughs> to uh, keep himself out of the, the first corner mess but uh, Hamilton just completely controlled this if he wanted to be four seconds ahead he was and there was a time where the gap hovered around the three seconds he said well you know maybe Red Bull are actually in this and then just before his pit stop Hamilton unleashed about five laps that were probably seven tenths of a lap quicker than anything else anyone could do and that was the race done and dusted there and there and Christian Horner said late in the race that he felt that Hamilton was kind of toying with the field a little bit but again it's that you know running up front at your own pace using up your tyres when you can use them the problem for Red Bull, of course, is when we get to Q3, we know that, uh, I don't know whether we're calling them party <laughs> modes anymore, I don't know if the party's over, but Ferrari and Mercedes have an extra have extra power to use in the last parts of qualifying. Red Bull don't. So Red Bull are always fighting these races from a compromised position to start with. If you could put one of them on the front row on merit and get amongst the, the red and silver cars, that would be very interesting because we know both Daniel and Max are both very, very good racers. But at the moment, they're sort of starting the race with one hand tied behind their back because of the qualifying performance. So, uh, But this was one Mercedes absolutely had in hand. Interesting, too, that it was... Um, probably not as warm as we thought but certainly warmer than Canada and we saw that in Spain a few races back where you get Hamilton up front in a race where he can control the pace and it's warm and that Mercedes just flies. Now Hamilton led Verstappen from Raikkonen, Ricardo, and Vettel for the top five. The top six uh, was not completed by Valtteri Bottas however he was slowed in that recovery and he did also to be fair had a particularly slow second stop on lap 39 uh, which he made just before Sebastian Vettel decided to make his second stop and was therefore beaten to six by Kevin Magnussen. Uh, we've explained the reason why Bottas had such a slow recovery. Kevin Magnussen though scoring points at a time when I suppose Haas does need them, considering they had such a strong start to the year and failed to score almost any points. Uh, but I, I suppose the fact this is slightly lucky, uh, and also we'll talk about Carlos Sainz in a reason as to what contributed to that luck, it sort of shows that Haas is no longer maintaining that midfield advantage, because I'd argue even that perhaps Renault was the faster car here. I would agree. I mean, we know Carlos Sainz had a few issues late in the race, but Haas have got to be the most mystifying team in Formula <laughs> One. I mean, you go back to the Australian Grand Prix, they were running fourth and fifth on merit in that race until they forgot that whole let's attach the wheels at the pit stop business. But, uh, you know, and there'll be other races where they're, they're barely, they're lucky to get out of Q1. So I don't really know if they know half the time why the car is slow when it's slow, but when it's quick, it's uh, absolutely on merit. And that was a, a tremendous drive by Magnussen, didn't make any mistakes. A little fortuitous at the end with science, as we said, but this was a day where because of Bottas's problems and to a lesser extent Vettel, there was a fifth or sixth place in the offing. And I think pre-race, you wouldn't have predicted that would have been 
and a half that would have taken that spot. So an outstanding race for them. And uh, for those still counting at home, that's 27 points to Kevin Magnussen <laughs> and zero points for Romain Grosjean, who finished 11th at his home Grand Prix. So it just goes from bad to worse for him. And I'm sure it wouldn't have uh, evaded too many people's attention that it was all three French drivers, Grosjean, Ocon and Gasly, who almost wiped each other out on the first lap. I think it was Grosjean who hit Ocon and then Ocon got in the way of Gasly and they eliminated each other and, and Grosjean was left to finish 11th. So yeah, pretty disappointing weekend for all of them. I think the word is carambolage, isn't it, or something <laughs> along those lines, but uh, an, an absolute debacle for the French drivers and the fact that two of them took one another out three corners into the race. Ocon had been hit by Grosjean on the way down to turn one and then uh, Gasly finished the job off at turn three. So uh, Ocon was, uh, it was an interesting line that he took, a bit desperate, I think, to try and uh, not lose any more places on the first lap. Didn't really give Gasly anywhere to go, to be fair. But uh, And then Grosjean, who looked pretty quick all weekend, he was in the top 10 for most of the weekend, did throw it in the fence in qualifying, but was pretty comfortably in Q3 and looked the faster Haas driver over the course of the weekend until Sunday. So uh, a very, very disappointing race for the French drivers. But uh, Charles Leclerc, I mean, I guess if you're Monegasque, you're almost French anyway. So I think the French <laughs> will claim him after another fantastic performance by him. Well, exactly right. A fantastic race performance off the back of qualifying in the top 10 in a Sauber, which is still confusing to say in some respects. Like That car does not belong there, and he's been likened to all sorts of past greats who frequently outperformed their car. I think the eight-tenths of a second he outqualified his teammate in Q1, where his teammate Marcus Ericsson was eliminated, notwithstanding that Ericsson did lose a lot of practice time due to a crash in FP2. But this was yet another, I suppose, um, reputation-making drive for Charles Leclerc. He was disappointed to have finished 10th, he said, even though, realistically, that car shouldn't have even been that high. Yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? And you go back, and it's only eight races ago that he debuted here in Melbourne, and he he was a little bit underwhelming, to be Mm. fair. I I was a little bit surprised. I thought he'd be a lot more on the pace to start with. But his last four races in the points, you can't fault what he's doing. To get a Sauber into Q3 for the first time in three years, and not at a track you would have expected that to happen he's very very cool in combat he knew he was going to be under attack in that race and you thought he might get a little bit beaten up in the first few laps of that race but to finish 10th to look really convincing doing it um, and qualifying uh, shall we say only two places behind Kimi Raikkonen in a works Ferrari certainly sends a pretty strong message to Ferrari management that this is a guy who needs to be in a better car it's just a matter of when it happens now between um, Bottas and Leclerc were the two Renault drivers Sainz and Hulkenberg Sainz probably feels like he should have finished fifth because that's where he was running uh, until he had a power unit problem uh, late in the race of course uh, I think in the last five laps I think it was uh, and he probably could have uh, lost more places at least one to his teammate uh, had it not been for a late race virtual safety car which was caused by if we go all the way back to the start Lance Stroll who was on one of these zero stop strategies he was struggling a lot he locked up his front left tyre somewhere along the way and then all of a sudden the tyre blew and I'm sure some people might have thought back to Silverstone last year wasn't it where uh, a similarly long strategy by the Ferrari drivers led their tyres to fail on the same lap although it wasn't put down in the end to overwear on that time but it does show that they're is still risk in overstretching the limits of the tyres in, in the pursuit of a long-running strategy. Well, and I think the comparison with Stroll is you look at what Sergei Sorokin did in the sister Williams, also tried to go the no-stop strategy. Now, I guess this is mitigated by the fact that Sorokin was actually penalised for going too slowly <laughs> behind the safety car, so may, maybe you don't puncture your tyres if you drive that slowly, but uh, the big lock-up for Stroll into Turn 1, and you just saw the state of that front left afterwards, and the number of laps still left to go, and that was going to be very, very tenuous to get to the end, and uh, is not often you see a car 
just completely explode a tyre like that. So uh, a pretty miserable end to a miserable weekend for them. But uh, Ciroc in the final car running. And if you're Williams at the moment, you're so far off the back of the grid that you, you may as well try something different. They tried something different with Ciroc and it didn't work. But, uh, you know, if you're them, you have to do something that someone else isn't doing in an attempt to, you know, you get a late race safety car, perhaps you can keep some track position there. But uh, ultimately a futile strategy for them. And then Fernando Alonso, we mentioned earlier, was the other one that uh, did a second pit stop, I think, mostly because McLaren were trying to stop him from throwing all of his toys out <laughs> of the pram at that point and uh, went for fastest lap and didn't even manage to do that and uh, then had a suspension failure and a puncture on the last lap. So uh, you win Le Mans one Sunday and then finish uh, finish uh, 16th and last runner on the, the following Sunday. Not a great week for Fernando. In a particularly bad week for McLaren, is there a better analogy than them trying to set the fastest lap, leaving the pits and immediately suffering a suspension failure on the in the process? I mean, there is no better there's no more apt conclusion to this race for them than that no and it's just going completely in the wrong way for them at the moment they actually started the season reasonably well but I mostly put that down to the genius that is Fernando Alonso rather than any great step the car and the team had made and you know they made so much noise last year about having you know the best or one of the best chassis in Formula 1 they have the same engine now as Red Bull and they're not even in the same league and uh, I think there's a, a it seems to me that there's a lot going on behind the scenes there at McLaren that we haven't heard the last of but now the future turns to you know what does Fernando Alonso do I don't think he's going to be up for uh, trundling around getting knocked out in Q1 and finishing you know, 16th in most races this was a particularly bad weekend for them but uh you know the races coming up where there's an emphasis on enormous straight line speed, you know, particularly Austria. Um, you do wonder how they're going to cope with that. So, I mean, you've been a, a long term, a long term motorsport um, observer, and certainly of Fernando Alonso's career as well over the years. What do you see happening after this? It feels like it's building to what is being built in some respects as the inevitable climax of him leaving Formula One at the end of the year, perhaps for for IndyCar and the Indianapolis 500. Do you see that being Fernando Alonso's exit from Formula One? Look, I think if there was another. If there was somewhere else that would have him where he could be more competitive in Formula One, I think he would probably prefer to stay in Formula One. But the the options are limited. He's certainly not going to Ferrari. He's not going to go to Mercedes. There's no Red Bull seat open at the moment. So it's hard to imagine that he would stay. The fact that he has won the Le Mans 24 hours now to go with the fact that he's you know, had so much success in Formula One you could win that triple crown you could go to Indy he's already done it he's done very very well there when he went there last year and given the age and stage of his career and he doesn't really have anything to prove it's amazing now that he hasn't won a world championship for 12 years Mm -hmm. is and is still considered one of the best drivers in the sport everyone knows what he offers but uh his career has been punctuated by being in the the right place but at the wrong time and uh perhaps it's time to uh to head to the u.s and try and tick that last box and I think he'd be reasonably happy with that. And I think it's just such a shame from a a combative fight at the front of the field point of view. You have him in one of the best cars and Formula One's in a better place. But uh, unfortunately, we haven't seen that now for for many, many years. Yeah, and I suppose with the driver market season building to its, what's pretty standard climax in the middle of the year, usually around the summer break time, perhaps we'll know sooner rather than later which way McLaren's going to go. Or as Zach Brown says, maybe he'll stay in the McLaren family, wink, wink, IndyCar, which is... Essentially, what I'm reading into that, I don't know if anyone else has picked that up. Well, I, th- I think that's a, a good, uh, shall we say, a good PR outcome for everybody involved. <laughs> but uh, how can they uh, keep the fury that is Fernando Alonso bottled up for the remaining 13 races of the year? That's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, well, it's exactly right. How much season he's still got to go with that car? Uh, the French Grand Prix is out of the way, though. We're in the middle third of the year, the middle seven races in Europe, uh, and this is when the championship narratives really begin to unfold. France, well, it delivered something. It's delivered a new championship leader in Lewis Hamilton. It's been a pleasure to look back on the race with you, Matt. Thanks, Michael. Cheers. 
That was Matt Clayton, Red Bull Australia Motorsport Editor. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast, and you can get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review to help other F1 fans find the show. You can also read the written report at f1strategyreport.com and stay up to date by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. My name's Michael Amanato. You can find me at Michael Amanato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in just a week's time for a wrap-up of the Austrian Grand Prix. Thank you.